So um, I think I know most people, maybe a couple new folks here. My name's Aaron Rock, and we call this 242 Church. The reason why we call it 242 Church, it's just a name really that springs off of a passage in the book of Acts, the fifth book in the New Testament, which describes life in the early church. And it says that the early believers met for teaching and uh, the apostles' teaching. They were studying scripture, among other things. And it's Acts 2.42. So when we started this ministry, we thought, let's call it 2.42 Church because it's a, it's a ministry meant to sort of give believers an opportunity to study uh, the word of God. But I, don't, I don't really consider Sunday morning preaching so much study time. That's me studying and then preaching, but you're sort of listening. So this is an opportunity for us to study together the text, and it's just one venue among several venues we have in our church community that gives us an opportunity to sort of delve into Scripture on a little deeper basis. And um, uh, the the way I like to teach, by the way, is, and I do this deliberately, is um, not just tell you what I think, but I, I try to teach in such a way that you will pick up on the processes or some of the processes that I use to study the Word of God myself. So, for instance, in some of the passages, I'll present you with options. So here are the interpretive options. And uh, that's one of the things I do when I'm studying a text. I try to understand what are the different views out there, then put them into a category, meaning that is this a, a linguistic issue, is this a theological issue, is this a geographical issue, a cultural issue, whatever it might be, and then you employ the tools and techniques that are necessary to work through the options within that category and come up with what, what I would consider to be a reasonable interpretation of the text. So those are the kind of things um, you know, that, that hopefully you'll pick up on in a course like this as well. Not just the, the, the end result of here's what the passage means, but also get you thinking a little bit, processing the text, Uh, developing powers of observation to see into the text in a meaningful way, to be able to cross-reference the text with other biblical texts and so forth, okay? So um, uh, let's get going, and uh, we'll just start with a word of prayer, and then we'll we'll get right into it. So Father God, thank you for this chance we have to come into this place, and uh, we come as uh, people who are interested in Scripture and uh, seeking to grow in our understanding of it. And we all recognize there are many passages in the Bible that at least at first glance seem somewhat opaque. And uh, we, we pray that um, you would just uh, give us the, the human abilities to understand the text, the, the language, the grammar, the history as best as we can. And then um, for those that know the Lord, we pray that uh, the power of the Holy Spirit would also illuminate their mind to its deeper and richer truths. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we usually teach roughly 6.30 to 7.30-ish. Then we take a 10-minute break, and uh, that's when we enjoy coffee and cookies and whatnot at the back. So it's sort of on you from here forward to show up with snacks. So you just want to make a mental note or a note in your phone or whatnot. Maybe a particular night, you can bring brownies or cookies or veggies or whatever you want. Just toss them on the back table. And uh, very rarely does nothing show up but we always at least have coffee and tea for you, okay? So hopefully that'll help. And some people bring their own salads uh, and, and don't share them. Uh, so you're, you're welcome to do that too, okay? So uh, once again, for those just arriving, there's handouts at the back, and I hope you're able to pick one up on the way in. All right. So let me begin by uh, just setting up the conversation a little bit. Um, the course dates, tentative course dates are at the top. So my plan is we're going to meet for the next four Tuesdays, 
and then uh, there's two Tuesdays where I will be traveling, so I won't be here, so we're not going to have a course uh, class at night. Then there's two more dates I've set on the map in February, and then we may go a couple weeks beyond that because, as I mentioned earlier, people have submitted more passages even as of today. Actually, most people didn't submit a passage. They just signed up. And I was a little bit surprised by that. Some of the passages overlap, but some, some people submitted a lot of passages on behalf of the rest of you. <laughs> so uh, we, should, we should have enough to sort of work through, okay? Um, all right, so let's just uh, begin with uh, a few um, uh, points of reference. So this course is designed to help you, the student, better understand some of the difficult passages of the Bible. And this is just sort of out of my head. I've probably missed several, but as I've explored Scripture over the years and talked to different people, there, there seems to me to be several reasons why the Bible sometimes is difficult to understand or certain passages of the Bible are difficult to understand. So here are some of them. And, and feel free, I, again, I probably missed some. You can add to these. Sometimes it's a lack of information about the context of the text. So for those who've taken Bible study methods courses or what we call hermeneutical courses, you will know that the number one rule in interpreting any text of the scripture is the context. Context is king. We say the top three rules of biblical interpretation are context, context, context. You always want to look at a passage within its setting. And that would include what testament it is in, old or new, what language it was originally written in, who wrote it, good, for what reason, what period of time, who were the original recipients, what were the circumstances in their lives when they first received the text, how did they understand the text of Scripture when it was given to them. Uh, These all are matters related to context. So if you just sort of flip open your Bible and point at a passage of the Bible and read that and read it without its context, it's very possible you'll misinterpret the Bible a lot. And unfortunately, a lot of lazy Christians do that. You know, they do the flip and point method. And, you know, the old joke that floats around, I didn't make this one up, but the old joke is, you know, there's a guy and he's looking for the voice of God for his life and he just wants to know what God wants for him to do and he just randomly says, I'm going to flip through the Bible and find a passage and the Lord will, I'll just trust the Lord to speak to me. And so he just flips open his Bible and it says, and Judas went out and hung himself. And wondering if this was maybe a word from the Lord for him, he wanted to confirm it, so he flipped a little bit further, and it said, go ye and do likewise. And uh, at this point, you're supposed to snicker because it's not a real situation. But um, the point is, is if we use the Bible like that, just sort of randomly pointing out different passages, we were going to extract meaning from it that was never intended. So... Understanding the context is important. So it may be a fault on your part or the, 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 the text may not give you certain aspects of context that would help you to understand them. So that would be one problem. And then we have difficulties pertaining to word or phrase meanings. I mean, we have some words in the Bible that are rooted in ancient culture. And one of the things we try to do when we study the Bible is to understand the meaning of words because we're relying upon translators, in this case in English, to render for us an accurate meaning for an original Greek or Hebrew word, and it may not always be particularly accurate, or the English word may not fully grasp the meaning of the original word. 
So for those of you who maybe speak a second language, you'll know this. When you translate from whatever other language you speak into this one, sometimes it's one for one, like there's a word in this language that's parallel to, to English. Other times, it doesn't really work. It doesn't fully convey the meaning. So sometimes we can get hung up on a passage of the Bible, not understanding it because we don't understand the meaning of a word or a phrase. Another reason then is lost cultural norms. So uh, keep in mind that the first books of our Bible were probably written in and around 3,400 years ago. And a lot has changed in the last 40 years. A lot more has changed in the last 3,400 years. So because we have books like Job written probably written well before Genesis were written, they, those, those old, the older the book gets, the more cultural gap there is between us and them. And so sometimes you see people doing things, like what, what's the whole thing with boiling a kid in its mother's milk? Like what's the deal with that? There's probably some cultural things going on back then that have literally been lost. If, there's certain things that happened back then that they would have understood that we just no longer have knowledge of. And so there can be uh, issues there. Uh, apparent contradictions with other biblical passages. So you're reading a passage, you're like, okay, I understand it, but I'm reading this passage, I also understand that, and uh, they don't seem to jive. So, of course, this is not the Bible's fault, it's the interpreter's fault, but there's, there's a necessity to somehow harmonize these two seemingly different meanings uh, to the text. Then we have um, difficulties related to the nature of the human versus divine mind. So let's face it, our brain is like you know, a, a tiny little fleck compared to God's. Now, God's is actually infinite, so this board doesn't even do justice. But let's say this white space is God's brain. This is yours. And sometimes when God speaks, there's a profundity, a depth, a richness to what he says that this little thing called the human mind takes a little while to, to understand. So we just need to be aware of that when we're interpreting the text. Then we have difficulties related to accepting biblical teaching on an emotional or personal level. So we've, we've all had this, I'm sure. I know some of you are more, just by nature, you're more of a rational person. Others are just more emotional, but we're all somewhat emotional. So we've all had the time where we're like reading a text and we're like, that doesn't feel right. I don't like it. And some are more blunt about this than others. I remember many, many years ago, probably the f first or second couple I ever counseled in prep preparing them for marriage, we were, we were uh, studying role relationships in our premarital counseling sessions. And we were in Ephesians 5 and 6, which talks about uh, submission and headship. And this Christian girl, I remember her just saying, I do not like that passage. And I thought, well, at least she's honest. <laughs> you know, just on an emotional level, she didn't like it. She had no reason to, she didn't say you're interpreting it wrong or you've misread it. She says, I just don't like it. And, you know, when you read about the Canaanite genocide, which I'm surprised no one has submitted a, a little t tip for you. I'm surprised no one submitted that as a passage to explore. What do you do with believers smashing babies against rocks? Like, how, how does that work? Like, that doesn't seem particularly Christ-like. So you have this emotional reaction to the text, which sometimes clouds our understanding of it. Then we have difficulties accepting the authority of Scripture. 
maybe not so much in a church like ours, but I'm sure there are still some in our church that may not be fully convinced of the absolute authority of Scripture. They're, they're still not sure. Like, is the Bible actually trustworthy and true? And because of that, you, you may understand a text, but you have trouble accepting its authority uh, over your life. Uh, we also have... Um, Poor or inadequate translating, and um, I'm, I'm using the word poor because sometimes it just is poor. Other times it's just inadequate. It just doesn't convey the oomph behind the words. Um, even something as simple as rhyming words. So there, there are rhyming words in Hebrew that a Hebrew reader will see that will draw their attention to the text. The words tohu wabohu, they rhyme. But um, in English, we just say um, formless and void. They don't rhyme. So there's, there's a playfulness to the text, a poetic dynamic to the text that is lost in the translation. Or at the end of uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis coming into Genesis chapter 3, there are two rhyming words in relationship to nakedness which would draw the eye of the original recipient, that the serpent was crafty and the people were naked. These words actually rhyme in the Hebrew, and it would have been a sort of a, a rhythmic uh, tie-in for them, but we don't have that. We've, we, it's not possible to, to come up with words that are, that are quite like that. Uh, we also have difficulty overcoming historical teachings or circumstances. So uh, what I'm thinking about there is... Uh, for those that maybe grew up in an atheistic home or an agnostic home or a Roman Catholic home or a um, Bible Baptist home or a Brethren home or a United Church home or whatever it might be, you're taught certain things. And uh, it's very difficult for us to extract ourselves from our history when we're reading the text. We, we subconsciously read it through the grid of what we were taught or what we weren't taught. And then there's uh, just life circumstances. So somebody submitted a request to look at the divorce passages. Well, I know there's people in this room that have been divorced. Well, you're going to read the text with a, with a, with a history. You, you, you bring a different history to the text than someone who is not divorced. And you just can't help that. Just as a person who's not divorced is going to bring their own history to the text. So these are things that we just need to be conscious of. And then there's a concern about the implications of a text teaching for one's current lifestyle. So this would relate to passages that tend to uh, convict or inform us that maybe we are not acting or thinking or feeling in a way that we should be. And if you're anything like me, when, uh, when you're confronted, there is, even if it's momentary, there's that momentary resistance to it, right? And... Uh, it can be more than momentary. It can be lifelong. But that resistance to the text may then uh, bring about uh, a desire for us to kind of come around the text and play with it to the point that it says what we want it to say. And then we end up misinterpreting it. And we may not even be conscious of doing that. So these are things, I just want to acknowledge them right up front, that I, I believe affect and have a bearing on why some passages of the Bible are difficult. Some passages of the Bible are just plain difficult. But sometimes the difficulty is that we are difficult. 
And so uh, the next statement there I've made is that this course will seek to both, number one, expound the text as best as we can, but then secondly, uh, offer suggestions as to why some biblical passages provide difficulties for the modern Christian. So I don't just want to say this is what it means, but I want to say I think this is why this is a difficult one for us on occasion. I'm not going to do it with all of them. And then I thought I'd have a little bit of fun. You might enjoy this. Uh, I'm going to offer a grade as to my certainty on the meaning of certain texts or aspects within the text. So I've come up with this little scale. This is my surety grade. <laughs> um, if I'm absolutely sure about the meaning of a text or an aspect of the text, I'm going to tell you I'm grading it as an A. This is just me, okay? So this means that I am as sure as I can be as to what this text means, and therefore I would preach it, teach it without certainty, without apology, and if you were to have an alternative view, I would say you're absolutely wrong, okay? So that's, that's an A. And then B is I'm r- very convinced. Uh, I'm sure enough to hold my interpretation. I'd preach it with conviction, but I would also feel comfortable recognizing that good people differ on this, okay? So there's latitude. Then the next category I'm just calling 50-50, and that's where there's sort of, I feel as if there's an equal chance that I'm right and an equal chance that I'm wrong, and therefore I just cannot be sure at this point. And then still questioning our passages or aspects of passages that confuse me more than they enlighten me, and I just need to see, still work on them. Now, probably pretty much without exception, I'm never going to go with D for a whole passage. But there may be a word or a nuance or an aspect of a passage. I'm like, I don't know what that means, guys. I, it just, it's very perplexing. And uh, I think I even maybe have one of those tonight if we get to it, okay? So that's where we're headed. So let's get right into it. I've put these in uh, order of where they appear in the Bible. And uh, we're going to start with Genesis chapter 6. So if you have a Bible... By the way, you probably should bring one to the course. I would recommend that you bring the English Standard Version, even if you don't normally use that, because we're going to be studying some nuances, and um, that's the one I'll be using. So for reading and referring to certain uh, aspects of the translation, it's probably best that we all are working from the same uh, translation, all right? So let's go to Genesis chapter 6 to get started. So just to set you up, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are, are two, two accounts. There's actually two accounts of creation. One comes to us in poetic form. The second one comes to us in narrative. Um, they do not contradict. They're just two ways of saying the same thing. Then Genesis chapter 3 introduces us to the fall of mankind, the first half dozen verses or so, the fall of mankind into sin. And then after that, God basically says, here's the consequences. Genesis 4, we start to get into the turmoil of Cain and Abel. Uh, Things are getting kind of hairy. And there's this, the first 11 chapters, which is all, which is everything sort of up to the time of Abraham, is sort of that um, you know, pre-Abrahamic period. It covers an expansive period of time where things are getting really nasty right up to the time of a, a flood. So part of that, just, in the, just to set the context, 
Part of that is this very odd uh, series of verses in Genesis chapter 6, and it reads as follows. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now notice, sons of God and then the daughters of man. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide a man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now later that was reduced to 70, but before that it's like 7, 8, 9, 950 years kind of thing. And then it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, if it wasn't for verse 8, we wouldn't be here. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the question is, um, <clears throat> who are these sons of God? Follow-up question, who are the daughters of men? And like, what in the world's going on here? Who are the Nephilim? And what are we supposed to make of this passage? So again, the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6 uh, set us up to transition from the pre-flood era into the circumstances giving rise to the actual flood event. And on a broad level, they function in the text, these verses function in the text, to show us the absolute depravity or the total depravity of humanity and how far we'd come since this perfect creation, which is recorded in the first two chapters. But there's this confusing phrase that, uh, as to the sons of God. Now, there are three basic views that have been adopted. So I'm going to survey the views have been adopted to uh, explain this difficult passages. Um, perhaps one of the most difficult passages in, in what we call the Pentateuch, which is the um, first five books of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're like the the capstone books, the most important books to any Hebrew. They're foundational to the rest of Scripture. Jesus elevated them, also known as the Torah. And this is one of, you know, probably the top ten most difficult passages in the Bible to understand. So let's look at some, um, some options. So some see the phrase referring to the godly line of Seth. Now, who is Seth? Anybody remember who Seth was? Oh, these are very nice. Um, Jordan, you mind looking at that cupboard to see if there's a working marker? Okay, so Adam's son. So what, what number of son was he? Who were the first two? Which one would you rather hang around with? Okay, so, but what about Cain and Abel? <laughs> so Cain was the firstborn, right? 
and uh, he kills his brother out of jealousy. You got some okay, great things. And um, so Abel's dead. Thank you, sir. And Seth is kind of like the replacement son. So he represents uh, righteousness. Uh, you need to keep this in mind. Because when some look at the phrase sons of God, they would suggest that this is a euphemism for the descendants of Seth. In contrast to the descendants of Cain, who are wicked men. Okay? And in a culture where there wasn't a lot of individuality, people were thought of as groups, there was a lot of corporate solidarity, corporate responsibility, a sense of um, affinity to your family history, your clan. You represented them. They represented you. If they screw up, you've screwed up. If they get wiped out, you get wiped out. If they are blessed, you are blessed. They're, they're, they're actually as, it's not unreasonable to think that the ancient writer meant that. That sons of God is a, a catch-all phrase for the descendants of the righteous uh, replacement son, Seth, and the, the wicked men in the text are the descendants of Cain. So um, the first interpretation is that this refers to the godly line of Seth or, or and we'll sort of throw this in the same category, other powerful men uh, who uh, loved God in some way. Uh, others uh, see this as this interpretation number one. Others see this as a, um, a a reference to fallen angels. We're going to go through all the reasons for this momentarily, but I'm just giving you the summary. So some believe that the sons of God is a euphemism for angelic beings who once had as their abode heaven and lived in the presence of God. Coming to earth, taking on corporeal form, meaning flesh and blood, just as the, 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 the archdevil Satan took on the corporeal form of a, a serpent and appeared as a snake, some sort of a reptilian figure. So the sons of God refer to fallen angels who procreated with women, to create a hybrid race of individuals known as the Nephilim. And they sort of incarnated then ultimate evil as these hybrid kind of beings. And still others uh, who would be more liberal in their persuasion than we would be would see this as uh, a remnant. So these would be... Uh, just the background would be there, there's many liberal Christians that see the Pentateuch as a compilation of various mythologies that ancient Jewish people had been exposed to by their interaction with the Amorites, uh, the Mesopotamian folks, the Philistines, the Moabites, and on and on and on, right? So they would see this as a remnant of a Canaanite mythology in the text. 
So it's, it's, they're not concerned with the historical accuracy of Scripture, these folks, but rather that it was just a, a myth from Canaanite myth imported into the biblical text. And um, y- y- it might interest you just as an aside that folks that see the Torah as a compilation will use evidence like, well, sometimes God's called Elohim, sometimes he's called Yahweh, uh, sometimes he's called like El Shaddai, and they would say that these different r- titles of God are actually titles borrowed, borrowed from several foreign religions and sort of blended and melded together. And uh, instead of getting rid of the old cultic names for God, they were just sort of mashed into the text. So the text is like a piecemeal, a fragmentary bringing together of uh, various Canaanite texts. And of course, I wouldn't believe that. I think that's, there's, there's no actual evidence for that. Uh, it's reading a, a notion into the text that, that is not there. Uh, plus, it is violence to the authority of Scripture and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I just want to throw that, out you, throw that out to you as one that some people have suggested. So this final argument then assumes that since Canaanites believed in uh, divine human sexual relations, so a lot of the Canaanite religions, as you know if you've read the Bible, whenever Baal worship and other forms of worship took up residence in Israel, what were one of the things they would do at at their temples? They would sacrifice people, but in relationship to sexuality, they would have people who were temple prostitutes. And it sounds really weird, like there's even, um, this is kinky of course, but there's uh, Phoenician and Cretan religions that would sacrifice young boys. Uh, The firstborn son would generally be sacrificed to their god, but before the young boy was sacrificed, he would be forced to have sex with an adult prostitute at the temple. And you know, this is sort of how demented a lot of those religions were. It was some sort of a, a right to ensure passage into the next world. And so sexuality was very much weave, uh, woven into the fabric of these religions. And so when some people see this notion of all oh, these angelic beings having sexual intercourse with women, that that's clearly a remnant of Canaanite mythology in the uh, Torah text, the Pentateuch texts. Uh, this, this view, however... Um, Uh, cannot be adopted since the passage clearly teaches the mortality of these men and their offspring. Uh, It it, it actually specifically says that they will, their lifespans were shortened to 120 years. Um, And instead of then of propping up Canaanite mythology, because it doesn't present the, let's say for a moment that the text is in fact presenting the validity of Uh, sexual relationships between divine angelic beings and humanity. So let's just assume for a moment that's that's what it is saying. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because God judges them for that and wipes them out for that very reason. Whereas in the Canaanite myths, it was a good thing, a redemptive thing. It was something they promoted. Here, it functions as a polemic against that if that that is the intended meaning, that some sort of angelic being procreating with a human, it functions as a pro- pro- polemic, meaning an argument against that, an apologetic against that, because God judges them and, dis- par- and it, it, partially for that reason uh, wipes out the world through a flood. So um, 
it emphasizes, yes, some powerful beings, however conceived, but these individuals who are mortal by nature ultimately die by God's sovereign decree in the flood event. So, having then given you a summary, I want to be fair to the top two views here. So the bottom one is excluded by virtue of the fact that it doesn't make sense and it's, it does violence to the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. So I, I'm going to focus in on these first two and uh, present to you the reasons why uh, each view has some measure of validity and then I'll give you my view and we'll you know, give you my little grade and whatnot on it, okay? So let's, we'll start with the second one. Um, here are some support or some arguments that one might use to uh, uh, support the fallen angel view. So uh, we're going to start with considering the phrase, the sons of God. Now, the phrase sons of God is um, in, in the Hebrew... Let me get rid of this thing. In the Hebrew text, son is the word uh, ben, benjamin, son of my right hand. Uh, so this is the word for son in Hebrew. And the generic word for God is Elohim. So ben Elohim, by the way, I'll... I'll I'm going to make this comment because I'm getting a little tired of Christians using this argument. Whenever there's an em attached to a Hebrew word, it's plural. Okay? So, the generic word for God, which is translated as a singular word, is actually grammatically plural. Now, a lot of Christians then ridiculously use this as an argument for the Trinity. Please do not ever do that, because especially if you're talking to someone who knows Hebrew, they will laugh at you. No Hebrew in all of history would ever, as much as preachers have taught it over the years, commentaries mention it, it's a myth that the word Elohim supports the doctrine of the Trinity. Please do not use that argument. Okay. Uh, not to mention the fact that there's no Hebrew reading from Genesis through to Malachi that even was aware of the doctrine of the Trinity. That came later. God progressively reveals certain aspects of himself to humanity throughout time, and that just had not yet come. Now, when we look back at the way God presents himself in the Old Testament, we see clues and hints at that. But it's, it's just really bad form and really, really bad scholarship to say, well, because the word God is in the plural, that proves that God is three persons in one. Please don't use that argument. This is a plural that is attached to a word that implies majesty. So in Hebrew, this grammatical configuration is called a plural of majesty. So when you come to a word in Hebrew, that is majestic or royal in nature, you often pluralize it, not so that it literally becomes more than one, but so that it is viewed in a higher, more elevated position. And this basic notion is actually found within older uh, generations of English speakers who recognize that a pastor, a judge, a, qu a queen, a 
king, magistrate, someone in a high position, can actually use the word, the, the plural pronoun we to refer to themselves because they have a representative position, meaning that they represent a, a cluster or body of people. So the Queen of England can say we, but she really means me or I. But she uses the word we because she is a representative of a kingdom, right? So the word for God, just the generic word for God, this is not the word for Lord, that's Yahweh, but the generic word for God is the word Elohim. And when these words come together, uh, they would, in the, in the singular, son of God, or in the plural, sons, if you had uh, the, 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 the word Ben pluralized, you would translate it as sons of God. And as to whether you put a capital G, uh, or a small g on it, that's a contextual thing because Hebrew doesn't have uppercase and lowercase, nor does biblical Greek in its original form doesn't have uppercase and lowercase. They just use one case. So the context then tells you whether you're going to go with a capital G or a small g. So all that to say that the phrase that appears here in the text is ben Elohim, sons of God. Now, this is what we call a euphemism. Yes, Steve? Uh, Abraham was uh, originally Ibrahim. Yes, father of many. He's actually Abram first. Abram first. Yeah, so the, uh, the e so Ab, or Ab, in more of an anglicized way of saying it, is like the word father. And when you add an eem to it, it's many, or plural, same thing. It's a good example. Um, so this uh, phraseology, sons of God, we often read this like from a New Testament perspective. So we think, oh, it's Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. Uh, but this word is, uh, this phrase actually appears before the Savior walked the earth. And it appears in books like Job very early on, right? And it appears in Genesis and other places in the Bible. So we're, the, the phrase sons of God is used elsewhere in biblical literature in reference to angelic beings. I'll give you some examples of this. Uh, Job 1.6. Uh, Job 2.1. Job 38.7. So we'll just look at one of these. Uh, we'll go to Job one six and there we read um, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them so we understand this contextually as angelic beings came to the Lord uh, and that's used consistently. So in Job, the other two passages, same idea that the sons of God is, they're not, it's not a literal, like God has little boys running around and they're all showing up to say hi to daddy, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an expression pointing to angelic beings. Now, the other word that comes up in the Genesis text is the word Nephilim, im, 
also pluralized. And this word is uh, interestingly also used in Numbers 13. So this is like way after this event, hundreds of years after this event. In Numbers 13, verse 33, you might recall this, that when the Jews were about to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan, what did they do? They sent in some spies. And these guys kind of went around the land and kind of took a look at things. And you got to put yourself back in that culture. Like, let's take the men in this room. There's guys in this room, they're like, whatever, five foot six, and some guys here, they're probably six four. So if you are standing at a battlefield and a guy who's five six has a machine gun and a guy who's six four has a machine gun, Size does not matter at all. It doesn't matter how tall you are, how big your biceps are. The guy that pulls the trigger the quickest wins, right? But that's, a, that's more of a, like a modern phenomenon because we use weaponry that doesn't require hand-to-hand combat. In ancient times, the size of a warrior made all the difference. And so these guys go into the land and they're looking around and they're like, there's some really big dudes here. That, like there's some some uh, ethnic groups that are like huge compared to us. And this scared them. So they come back, and if you read the text, several of them give a negative report about their experiences. And um, Caleb, of course, is one of the guys that gives a positive report in verse 30. And he he basically says, uh, let's go up at once and occupy it. We're going to overcome them. But then it says, then, then the men who had gone up with him said, um, we're not able to go against the people for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they'd spied out saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people we saw there are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So we're like grasshoppers. These are like giants. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that there were Nephilim in the land at that time, because these guys are bringing a bad report. This could be a case of exaggerating. This could be guys. We saw like giants. In fact, they were like. They're thinking Genesis, they're like the Nephilim, they're huge, we'll never be able to take them down. So there's some debate in Numbers 13.33 whether they are actually speaking to a historical reality that there actually were Nephilim, some giants in the land that were somehow descended or somehow related to or like the men of Genesis 6, or whether they're exaggerating. But this we do know to be true, that there were ethnic groups in the land that were bigger than them. And what's the most notable example of that? The Philistines, right? So the Philistines, there's several examples in the Bible of them having very tall, very large warriors. That doesn't mean they all were like that, but for whatever reason, uh, they were probably just a bigger group of people. Some have even suggested that they had a breeding program to breed large warriors, and when... Samson was caught, and it says he was set to grinding at the mill, that that was a a euphemism for he was used for stud purposes. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. It's probably a little bit far-fetched, but, I mean, who knows? (laughs) I guess it's possible 
that they had a breeding program. I don't really know. But uh, there definitely was some truth to the fact that there were large people in the land. But the Genesis, the, the Numbers 13 text, like if it was Caleb saying, you know what, there's Nephilim in the land, then, then it would be easier then to say of the Genesis 6 text, well, it's the same word. I think it's probably the only two references in Scripture that uses the Nephilim. Okay, so the, the Nephilim are definitely just really big people. But again, we're not sure because given a bad report, they may just be pulling out of their history and fabricating things a little bit to try to bring a bad report to the people. Because it says in the text, they're, they're seeking to bring a bad report. They're making things look negative, right? Um, so then the next thing that we need to think about is there's at least three New Testament passages that appear to refer to this passage as angels. So let's go to the New Testament, and we'll go to 1 Peter chapter 3 for starters. First Peter chapter three, uh, verse eighteen. So this is actually a text that will come up later on in our uh, study, not of this topic, but just another text, a difficult passages text. So we'll just skip in. Um, so this is about Christ's death, uh, verse nineteen. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. We need to talk later about what that means. Uh, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Um, so some have suggested that uh, the spirits in prison were some sort of individuals who were uh, put in some hell-like state at the time of Noah. So people automatically think, okay, maybe that's a reference to Genesis 6. And that Christ, in, his, in between his death and his resurrection, went and somehow evangelized them or preached to them in some way, shape, or form. And then we'll go to Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, uh, where it says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then verse 5 says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah. So, again, we need to look at that text at a later date, but just I'm just going to be really simple right now. Everything I just read, is that a reference to the same event, or is that two different events? So is it an if, another example, if, another example. If you take it as two different events, then there's no necessary tie-in between the spirits and the event of Noah, which may refer to the Genesis 6 event. But if they're referenced to the same thing, then it might be that out of all the things that took place in the Noah event, that the writer is interpreting Genesis chapter 6 as being a reference to some sort of spirit beings uh, you'll notice the language of verse 4, specifically angels who sin by procreating with human beings. And then um, you could also look at Jude 6 and 7. You don't really need to do that because Jude is just copying Peter. It says the same thing. But again, if it's a reference to the same, to the same uh, event, it may, okay, I'm using the word may, be that those three passages are interpreting the Genesis 6 passage as angels, and if they are, then we've got to take it as such, because they're apostolic figures. 
But there is some ambiguity in those texts as to whether they're referring to that event or not. Another point of fact is that translators of the LXX, so the LXX is a copy, this is just the Roman numerals for 70, is a copy of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but uh, at different points in time, Jews were expelled from the land of of Israel or war crept in. And there was a period of time where a whole bunch of Jews were living in Egypt. And they were living in Egypt during the Hellenistic era, meaning the Greek era, when the world was sort of Greekified, and everybody was speaking Greek, and Greek was like the lingua franca, the trade language of the day. And during, during that period of time, this is just a couple hundred years before Christ, they translated the whole Old Testament into the Greek language, and it's known as the Septuagint. I think they call it the Septuagint because the, the notion is, is that 70 scholars might have been involved in translating it. So we still have the Septuagint. I have one in my office. And Greek is a much more precise language than Hebrew. And the benefit of having the Septuagint is that it puts us, think about this, into the mindset of, let's say, a second century B.C. Jew and helps us to understand how they read the Hebrew text at the time as they rendered it into the Greek language. Make sense? So we often study the Septuagint when there's ambiguity in the Hebrew because we're like, well, let's see what a guy like 2,200 years ago who spoke Hebrew and who spoke Greek understood. So in the LXX, this doesn't mean the LXX is the, you know, the inspired word necessarily, but in the LXX and in another historical book written around that time called First Enoch, again, not biblical, not a biblical book, they choose, now this is a translation choice, they choose to render Ben Elohim as angels in their translations. So this just tells us that at least those translators understood this expression as angels. doesn't mean they're right, but it's something to consider. Another point is that uh, the idea of um, angels Angels inhabiting human bodies, some people are like, you know, that's impossible. How could that happen? Well, as I've already mentioned, Satan did take on the form of a, 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 a creature, a, a serpent, and that a serpent with legs, apparently, because it says he's later told to walk, he's going to crawl on the ground on his belly. So either the serpent in the tree had legs or the serpent in the tree somehow was able to move along upright. And... Uh, this is an example of uh, an, an angel, an evil angel in that sense, taking on uh, the form of uh, um, uh, flesh and blood. So Genesis 6 then might, uh, uh, might be intended to sort of take the mind of the reader back to Genesis chapter 3 and remind them of the drastic consequences when uh, an evil angel is embodied and lives among us. Might be the case. Uh, Jude uh, 6 and 7 also uh, may be referring to angels leaving heaven for earth. Uh, the Gospels indicate that fallen angels are more than willing to indwell human bodies for their own purposes. Let's just pop over to Ezekiel chapter 28 for a minute. And... Um, this isn't the proof text, but there's something interesting that we'll see in Ezekiel. 
So Ezekiel is, um, we're going to go to Ezekiel 30, no, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel is written when? Who is Ezekiel a contemporary of? Anybody know? Uh, Daniel. So Daniel uh, was um, living during the 6th century BC, during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And Ezekiel was uh, a contemporary of his, prophesying before the captivity and perhaps into it. And he often prophesies against foreign kings or rulers that have influenced the people. And at one point, he's prophesying against the um, the king of Tyre. So Tyre's like kind of north, uh, western corner of the area where Israel was. There have been times when they were on good terms and there was some trade going on. You remember the king of Tyre and some guys from that area actually helped build Solomon's temple. But... Um, in verses 11 to 19, he laments over the king of Tyre. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord, You are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And he lists the stones that were there. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an, an you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you in the abundance of your trade. You were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. Uh, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. I turned you into ashes on the earth. In the sight of all who saw you, all who, uh, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. Uh, you have come to a dreadful end and shall... Uh, Shall be no shall be no more forever. Now, you will know this about prophecy. That prophecy has, often has a double layered meaning to it. Historically, it was very common for Christians to say this is a prophecy about Lucifer, Satan. Um, problem with that is he actually t tells us it's about the king of Tyre. It's kind of hard to get around that one. So the guy that's actually named, we can't discard him to find in the text someone who's not actually named, but. While it is a prophecy of the king of Tyre, it seems quite clear that Ezekiel is referring probably to the devil in the garden as an archetype of the king of Tyre. There is some sort of a... It's like basically saying, you're, you're the devil. You act so bad, you're like the devil. You're like a, a serpent swinging from a tree and tempting people. It's that kind of thing. So in calling the king of Tyre the devil he tells us something about his understanding of the devil, doesn't he? Make sense? So we gain insight into Ezekiel's mindset about who the devil was, who the, the serpent was, as he lambastes the king of Tyre, who's like a symbol or type of Satan because of his actions against God. And uh, in uh, this text, uh, we have Satan then, 
it would appear, being associated with a king of Tyre. There's a, a coming together of a satanic being and a human being. Again, maybe not quite the same as the serpent uh, or Satan taking on the form of a, a, a created creature, flesh and blood in the snake. But at least there's some sort of a, a tie-in between uh, the, the activities of the created flesh and blood creature and the activities of a spirit being like an evil angel like the devil himself. So again, these aren't proof texts that prove the point, but they just sort of help us to maybe build an understanding that says, yeah, maybe it wasn't as, maybe it isn't as unreasonable as we might otherwise think for there to be uh, an, an evil angel taking on some sort of a, a man-like form and you know, marrying into regular run-of-the-will women and having children by them. Two more points. The size of the men seems to suggest some sort of a strange origin. I mean, it doesn't just say, these guys procreated with these guys and had evil kids. It says the evil kids were like huge. So why give us that detail if there's not something, in the, something going on that's a little unusual? It's not the same like in the rest of the Bible when a, the Jewish men married Moabite women or Canaanite women. God doesn't say, you know, you know what the problem with this is? There's all these big kids around now, and they're scaring everybody off. It doesn't mention the size of the offspring. Uh, he simply focuses on the inappropriateness of that kind of a union. So there's something there to be thought about. And then, uh, finally, the Sethite or human view, uh, it is argued, seems to stretch the language of the text. And it would appear that something pretty extreme is happening here, leading to a catastrophic flood judgment. So those are the, 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 the traditional arguments. They're not all my arguments. I'm just trying to present them to you fairly. These are the traditional arguments that are used to support the fallen angel view. But there's several things to consider that you know, lend some weight to the Sethite or human view as well. And that is that if you go back and you carefully explore Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.7, it seems quite evident that in all three of those texts where the phrase sons of God are used, they are always used of good angels, never evil ones. So if the sons of God are a reference to evil angels, that would be an anomaly in the biblical text. It wouldn't be an anomaly in the text for the sons of God to refer to angels. That seems to be how they're being understood in Job. But it would be an anomaly in the text. Doesn't mean it's not true, but it would be an anomaly in the text for, ev for evil angels, fallen angels, to then be referred to as the sons of God, euphemistically even. Secondly, uh, there is an obvious problem in explaining how, getting right down to the nitty-gritty of it, how angelic spirits could procreate with humans, it does seem to defy the laws of human experience. So if, going back to the idea of the, the serpent taking on flesh and blood, if it is an issue of uh, evil angels inhabiting the bodies of human beings, like what we would call today uh, demonic possession, Okay, that, that would make a little more sense, but the onus is still on the human and 
not necessarily on the angelic being itself for the sin that's being created or committed. So if the text is meant to say, you know, that these angelic uh, beings, these evil angels, took on uh, human form, actually somehow wrapped themselves in human form, okay, that's, there's something to be explained, like how do they actually do that? Where'd that authority come from? If it was just a matter of them indwelling or sort of possessing uh, otherwise bad-to-the-bone people, that might make a little bit more sense. The emphasis of the text... I want to take you back to the text for a moment. With regard to consequence is very specifically directed to one and only one group of beings. So back in Genesis chapter 6, let's look at these verses. Verse 1, when man, notice the word, when man. Verse 2, the daughters of man. Uh, Verse 2, wives. Verse 3, my spirit will not abide with man. Verse 4, the daughters of man bore children by them. Verse 5, God saw the wickedness of man. Verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man. Verse 7, I will blot out man. Now, I'm emphasizing those words for this very simple fact. Very simple reason. The judgment is all about judgment on men. So if the text is trying to say the problem arose because evil angels decided to become human beings, so why are we getting the blame for it? Like, why is God, I'm going to wipe out all men. Why wouldn't the judgment be either both applied to men and demonic angels or just apply to demonic angels. I'm going to get rid of all these Satan. God could do that. He could rid the world of demons like that. Wouldn't mean that sin would go away because we still get ourselves to contend with. But he could wipe, wipe clean the ability of evil angels to invade this world. That would be no problem for God. They are created beings who've fallen too. The, the whole point of this, the whole point of Genesis chapter 6 is to set us up to create a reason to validate the global destruction of humanity through the flood. Why would you then basically say, angels are really, really bad, they're terrible, this is everything they've done to us, and so God's going to damn all of us for their sin. So I think this is the most, uh, this is the, the biggest reason in the text why the, uh, an, the, the angelic argument loses ground because the, the whole context is about the damnation of man, not about the damnation of evil angels. Even if evil angels were some sort of a cause, okay, fine, that would be helpful to know. But we still get the blame for it because it's the human that's wiped out in the flood event. So if it's meant to refer to evil angels, why do they not seem to get rebuked? The sin is pinned exclusively on humanity. And if it's them causing it, they get away with it scot-free. The sin specifically mentioned is marrying any of them they chose. This may be an allusion to polygamy, which Lamech, the idiot, who's mentioned a chapter or two earlier, you know, this big shot bragging to his two wives about how many people he killed, 
uh, is, is committing, which was a violation of God's original intent. Um, also, when we look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 19, it does seem to indicate that Cain's offspring were particularly evil. So when you go to Genesis 4.19, it starts to talk about, you know, here's who Cain had, and this is his son and his son and his son. It doesn't say a lot about these guys. But if you do look at one of them, Lamech in, in chapter 23, this is where he's bragged, killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And he's a braggart. He's like portrayed as a nasty dude. Why would we be given that piece of information if it didn't somehow build into something we're about to encounter later on? So here's my basic thinking. There's no throwaway lines in the Bible. Everything's there for a reason. And if not for an immediate reason, for a future reason. So when I'm reading through the genealogy, this guy begat this guy, and this guy begat, okay. And all of a sudden we have a little balloon off to the side. Says, By the way, this guy named Lamech, and he's a moron. Why do we need to know that? Well, I think because in the mind of the Hebrew reader, it sets them up to understand the evil of Cain's line, out of whom, by the way, would later come the Canaanites, which would therefore justify the genocide of the Canaanites. But that aside, it sets us up for, about, for what is about to happen to uh, the world. So we have Genesis 4, Basically telling us this guy and his descendants are wicked. Genesis 5, this guy and his descendants, the only one that we really know a lot about is Noah, is righteous. He's the only one that's righteous. So if the structure of Genesis 4 and 5 are, let me tell you about an evil race, let me tell you about a good race, that actually ties in really well to Genesis 6. It talks about two different groups, uh, even though one's the minority who are at odds with each other, see? So I, I think it fits the text. It is also uh, interesting that there's great stress placed upon the concept of mortality, including the shortening of lifespans, which, again, mortal judgment for mortal men. That makes sense. Mortal men sin, mortal men, your lifespan's reduced. It makes sense in the text why the judgment would be, yep, your lifespan's being reduced. Uh, the question is, if this is actually like evil angel hybrids and the onus is really on the angels, well, again, why do we get the shortened lifespans? What do they get for their sin and transgressions against God? The, another point, historically, the view sons of God, remember I said like the LXX accepted it as, the, as angels? Well, a lot of others throughout church history have accepted it otherwise. So I can give you the names of uh, John Chrysostom, uh, Augustine, Luther, Calvin. That's a, Those guys are living century, uh, millennia apart, but those guys saw it as the Sethite view. Again, it doesn't mean they're right. Just because Calvin says this is what his belief is doesn't mean he's right, nor is Luther. But at least it balances the equation and says some people took this view, some people took this view. There's There's good people on either side that are out there that kind of came down on either side of the equation. Uh, another point, Adam is primarily blamed for the sin of Genesis 3 as ahead of the relationship. So if Genesis 6 intends to pronounce judgment upon humans, what do we do with the fact that the heads of these sinful relationships were not men, but angelic angels or 
angel-human hybrids. So throughout Scripture, guys, you get the blame. Adam got the blame. Adam's mentioned in Romans 5, but Eve's the one that actually initiates the sin, but Adam gets the blame as the head of the relationship. So if it, if it was angel-spirit hybrids, it would actually make more sense to flip it around and say the angels took on the form of women and human men went in and bred with them, and then it would, okay, well, that's why humanity gets blamed for it because the heads of the relationship didn't function in the way that they were supposed to function. But when the heads of the relationships, the marriages, are not actually even fully human per se, again, it doesn't square with the rest of Scripture which presents the initiator man as the male, specifically as responsible. Uh, Another point, Philistines were giants, but they weren't thought of as coming from angel-human relationships. If angel, evil angels indwelt human men, it's conceivable that their offspring would be evil, but why would they necessarily be large? Think about that. So let's say it was angels and humans. It still doesn't answer the question, uh, why were they really big? So remember earlier I said to you, the opposite argument would be, there's something weird going on because these guys are really big. Well, the opposing argument is, so what, what logical connection would there be to an angel procreating with a woman and having an extra large kid? It doesn't answer the question either way. They could be really small. Who knows? Uh, early rabbinic scholars pronounced curses on anyone who took the angelic view, uh, preferring instead to see the sons of God as mighty humans. And finally, 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5, which we looked at earlier, may not, in fact, link angels to the flood any more than it links it to the Sodom event, which is also mentioned in the 2 Peter text. So the use of if clauses, if, da 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 if, da 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 in the 2 Peter text, uh, seems to suggest that the angels in hell, comma, the flood, comma, the Sodom events, are three separate incidents not connected, that Peter is referring to, that gave rise to judgment. Not to be taken as all in reference to the same thing. So let me just say this from a different angle, because it may be clear to me and not clear to you if you're hearing this for the first time. In the second Peter text, there's three judgments mentioned, or three incidents that build a case for judgment, right? Right? So those that go to the text, read the section I read to you earlier, and because it talks about some sort of evil spirits and Noah, they link those together and say, ah, when I then read Genesis chapter 6, it's telling me that those people that did that nasty thing back in Noah's day must have been spirit beings of some sort, which is not that far removed from saying, okay, well, there are angel beings, angel human beings. But what they fail to recognize, there's a third example used, in reference to Sodom. Sodom's got nothing to do with the Genesis 6 event. It's thousands some odd years later. So it's better to separate them out and see Peter is referring to three separate incidents rather than linking the first two as one and leaving the third one to stand on its own. So that's, that's kind of the, the idea. So here's the, t- here's, the, here's the fact of the matter. Um... The precise meaning has obviously been debated, and uh, when we debate this kind of stuff, we can't lose sight of the fundamental key understanding, which is what? Regardless of which view you take, what 
what is the Genesis 6 passage supposed to tell you? So if you're preaching it or teaching it, and you're dealing with the details, at the end of the day, what does, what does your listener have to take away from the text? What would it be? Because man was evil. So if you miss that, like you miss the forest for the trees, as we say. Uh, at the same time, understanding the intricacies of the text does uh, provide a titillating discussion, debating the phrases, and in the end, we see God judging the world through a global flood, which is a precursor to ultimate judgment, Revelation 21.1, where God will wipe out the whole world because of the evil of man. So uh, we can't lose sight of the, the overall meaning. So when it comes to the specifics, though, I'm going to give it a B for the Sethite view. So in other words, I hold to the Sethite view. I think there's more evidence that weight puts us in that direction. I'm going to go with this, but I'm going to give it a B. In other words, I'm pretty sure I'm right, but I'm not 100% sure I'm right. And therefore, uh, if there are others that disagree and hold to the fallen angel view, I think that's legitimate. I think that's legitimate. So this isn't one of those ones where I'd be prepared to like stand on a hill and take a bullet. But uh, I think there's probably a little more weight and sense to the Sethite view and a little more problem with the fallen angel view. Any comments or questions before we wrap this one up? I don't know if there actually is a translation for it because word meaning is based on usage. And because it only pops up a couple times and it doesn't really describe the meaning of the word, all I can tell you is it's plural. In that case, a reference to a people group. And the title of that people group is the Nephilim. So it, it's like the equivalent of saying the Edomites or the Israelites. There may be a word, like a meaning to the word Edom, but it's not really important. It's just a, a, a catch-all phrase for the, the name of the, the particular group being mentioned in this text. So those that would take the, the angel view would add a meaning to it that it's some sort of angel human hybrid but I, I, I don't know that there is a like a, a, a meaning to the actual essence of the word itself correct yeah they're yeah like angels in scripture are referred to using masculine pronouns as as is God Usually, there's a few instances where God is referred to, or attributes of God, like wisdom. God is called wisdom, and that's actually a feminine word. But, um, probably because women are wiser. But uh, God is normally referred to using male gender, and so are angels, but they're not presented as sexual beings. They are complete into them, unto themselves. They're not separated into two distinct genders and therefore they do not reproduce. So. Yeah. So what about King Og then? Just a really big dude. Yeah, so he's of another 
ethnic group. He's got like an iron bed, right? And uh, I think he's probably described in the text as 9 or 10 or 11 feet long, if you do the math into our measurements. But um, yeah, he, like the Philistines, is described as a really, really big dude. But not, not the same word there. Ref, Rephaim, you said, I think? Yeah. Yeah, totally different word, though. There's no tie-in. There's no grammatical tie-in to those two words. No. Okay. So, yeah, other men, sons of Anak, big guys, Philistines. If Goliath had sons, they were probably pretty big guys. But, uh, I mean, there's ethnic groups today. There's, there's ethnic groups, of course, that have been wiped out, right? There's extinct ethnic groups. And the human beings we see on the world today, one would assume are only a slice of the genetic variation that would have potentially been in Adam and Eve. Because a lot of, we, it's kind of a weird way of saying it, but a lot of human genetic material has been lost in war. And we're also kind of like purebred dogs, right? We, we've sort of been, we, we're, we've been bred down so that uh, we, we only are capable of producing people that more or less look like us unless we marry someone who's distinct from us. So my wife and I are white. If we had a million children, they'd all be white. They might be different shades of white, but they're all going to be white. Whereas one would think that Adam and Eve, if they, whatever color they were, I mean, the word Adam does mean red, earth, so maybe he was kind of that intermediate color. Um, it's possible that, uh, and I'm not a geneticist, but it's possible that Adam and Eve could have had within them massive genetic variation. And maybe that's also why they were able to live longer, because they were more pure, you could say. Um, and we just sort of represent slices of it. And there's mutations that take place, and we carry forward all these mutations, and it causes all sorts of problems for us along the way. So, I mean, they're just creatures al almost of a different kind. <laughs> Not in the biblical sense of the word, but they're, they're very different than us, it would, it would seem to me. Um, and so some of these, let's say there were uh, uh, within them the ability to produce very large people. Well, over the course of time, as selective breeding takes place, you might have very large ethnic groups. Some of those might have been lost. I mean, we look today at, at uh, countries that produce a lot of people, like a lot of men starting at six foot and up, and we're like, wow. Well, who's to say that you know, 5,000 years ago, there, that wasn't like being a seven-footer wasn't short for a specific ethnic group? Just like if you go to like the pygmy peoples of us, Australia, they're all very, very short, right? So there's just, there's, there's genetic variation even on the planet today. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean that—that's a reason. When it talks about the firmament above, and the—I the, mean, the, the Bible, the Genesis account does refer to like a water canopy. Um, 
you know, some people might say that's just the clouds, others it's actually some sort of a deep, dense mist which would have kept out UV, which would have enabled reptiles which never stopped growing to reach enormous sizes, especially the species of reptiles like brontosauruses who are huge and have huge lung capacities. And frankly, we'd have a really hard time breathing in our atmosphere today anyway because they're th they, they would have to be in a more, we'll use the word hyperbaric chamber, a more pressurized environment, right? And, and that could have given rise, if you have more of a tropical-like world, which is protected more from UV and, and more tropical in nature, to the, to the growth of dinosaurs, which are just other species of reptiles, and the longevity of humanity, and, and all sorts of things. It makes sense. Uh, we don't have photographic pictures of it, but it, it makes sense based upon a plain reading of the Genesis account. And it, it makes sense logically, too. The next passage we're going to look at is Genesis 32. This is uh, the one where Jacob is wrestling with God. And God touches his hip and it's dislocated. And he is not only renamed, but he lives with a limp for the rest of his life. And for that reason, the text says that Jewish people do not eat from the hip of, uh, eat the sinew of the thigh and the hip socket when they slaughter an animal. So, some interesting things here. We'll read it. I'm going to read verses, uh, the passage is submitted as Genesis 32, 24 to 25, but I actually just want to go back a little bit. We're going to start at verse 22 because that's the full account and read right through to verse 32, okay? The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. So let's just set up the context again, back to context. Jacob was a twin. He was known as a conniver, a deceiver, a bit of a weasel, a mama's boy. There's certain things about Jacob that are likable, but he's, he's a little bit, he's the kind of guy you probably don't want to go in business with because you'll end up getting the short end of the stick. And uh, he's just always seems to be this guy, you know, there's a certain part of Jacob you kind of like, but he's like, you're kind of, you're kind of an irritating little creep too. <laughs> and he's always pulling stunts. And sometimes people are trying to pull stunts on him like his father-in-law and, you know, giving him the the uglier sister, and he'd work for the more beautiful It's terrible, but it's, it's biblical. So um, let's talk about that. <laughs> no. Uh, so <laughs> Maybe at a men's event. But, <laughs> but okay, <laughs> in the back with glass. So he, uh, he tries to outsmart his... He's sort of outsmarted by his father-in-law, and then he outsmarts his father-in-law and ends up creating this big herd. And, um, so after many years away from his place of uh, birth, he decides, you know what? I've made my fortune. I have a bunch of kids, two wives, two concubines. I'm going to start heading back to the land of my father's. And he finds it on the way that his twin brother, who he'd ripped off of the birthright decades earlier, is coming to meet him. So being the man's man that he is, he sends all the kids ahead of him and the wives ahead of him, and, you know. Uh, 
you know, they could have been slaughtered, right? But he's kind of a jerk. So he does this, and this is the, this is the context that we find ourselves in. So then it says in verse 23, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And now, if you read the whole background, you're supposed to be thinking at this point, this is kind of creepy. Like, come on, Jacob. I mean, I know you're, you're always looking out for yourself. You're always trying to get ahead. Look for that little, look for the gray area. You can slip through the cracks. Uh, but this is a little bit much. Like you're putting everything you have on the line because you have these overwhelming self-protective instincts. But that's what he does. So then, then this, this event that takes place needs to be understood in light of that context. So Jacob was left alone. And then it says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Like, what, what's that all about? Like he went to a WWF event? Like, what is this about? But then it says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, it doesn't say he couldn't, but he didn't, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Which, again, is kind of odd. And he said to, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, keep in mind the power of the meaning of names in Scripture and in many cultures today. It's not, I'd have to kind of think about what my name means. I think I know. But I don't think about that. It's not part of my identity. It's just a name my mom gave me. But in ancient times, and in some cultures today, the meaning of a word is like profound. So he says his name is Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob at Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Uh, therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. That last verse, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on, by the way, is a, a comment by the writer who's recording this event hundreds of years later to a people now in the wilderness just using this event to explain something related to their dietary customs. But uh, I want to try to understand, like, what is this all about? Like, why, why is he wrestling? Who's he wrestling with? Um, what does the naming have to do with it? These, these are the questions I think people are asking. So first of all, let's just admit this is a strange and unique passage. It pre presents us with a vision that's hard to comprehend. Uh, the message, however, is not hard to comprehend. Yeah, I, don't, I think the message actually is really, really simple. The details are difficult. And I'm going to acknowledge this later when I do the grading part. But uh, I think it's really clear that this passage serves, the purpose of the passage serves to show the tenacity of Jacob manifested towards God and man 
and that in the end God humbles him and gives him a physical mark of his humility and even changes his name from a name that means deceiver or heel grabber, trying to get something that's not yours, to a, a name that relates to uh, a fight with God and God uh, humbling him through a physical mark. So I, that's the purpose. That I'm going to say, I'll try I'll it straight up. That's an A for me. That's what the passage, that's how the passage is intended to function. That's the takeaway that he's a weasel. He's always trying to connive. His whole life is about that. He's even trying to fight with God. And there is a sense in which he wins, but there is a sense in which ultimately he's humbled before God too. So really what we're looking at then when we're asking questions of this text is more the details. Like, what about the man? Who's the man? What's up with the hip? These kinds of things. So I, I think that just to summarize, the, the, the passage serves to summarize the whole of Jacob's life, Jacob's personality, and Jacob's struggles. He always wanted to be blessed by God, didn't he? It's clear from the very beginning. He's always looking for blessing. It's like a dominant theme. You talk about people with values. Some people value material possessions. He liked them. Some people value relationships. I'm sure he valued his relationships. But without question, the Jacob that is presented to us in the Bible, we don't get every detail of his life, but the details we do present, his number one value is he wanted blessing. He wanted his father's blessing. He wanted his mother's blessing. He wanted his brother's blessing. That's why he sends him all those gifts in the broader context. Uh, you know, I, I want to be, be right with you. He wanted Laban's blessing. He's just, this is like huge for him. And at the same time, he's bullheaded and he's a fighter. He's, he's, he's willing to take matters into his own hands to try to get it. And that's where it's like a double-edged sword. It's okay to, I want God's blessing, don't you? So that's not necessarily a bad thing, but where his broken humanity comes to bear is he's always trying to get it through his own means. And there's some preachable stuff in there. So he does this relentlessly and at times deceptively. I'll give you some examples. Chapter 25 and 27 of Genesis are all about him trying to struggle with and deceive his brother to get his brother's blessing. Chapter 27 is carryover of that, trying to get his father's blessing. Puts, you know, does himself up, pretends he's his brother, tries to give an excuse for the fact that his brother had a deep voice and he had a not-so-deep voice. He struggles with his father-in-law. That's chapter 29, 30, 31. He's just, it's just the, the whole thing is about him struggling. And now, finally, the climax of all this is he's struggling with God. So struggle with his twin brother from the time he's in the womb then struggles with him as he's older for blessing and birthright, then struggles with his dad, then struggles with his father-in-law, and now he finally is struggling with God. So do you see the pattern? And then verse 26 then of uh, Genesis 32 summarizes uh, everything. Uh, Verse 26 where it says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
So th this, I think, is actually a summary statement, or at least functions as a summary statement of his entire life. Really, it is. Now, strangely, he wins the blessing. In verse 28, uh, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, this is not prevailed in the sense that you just beat up God or I guess God's a weakling and you're tough. But for, for purposes, we'll just say broadly speaking, of God's covenant with Abraham and the fact that God, for whatever reason, keeps choosing the younger brother, the, the, the less adequate, the more broken character, he, in a sense, Jacob prevails against God because he gets God's blessing again, just like he got his brothers, just like he got his fathers, just like he got his father-in-law's. He actually gets God's blessing. So you can't interpret this as God's a weakling and Jacob's a tough guy, but God does bless him. Not necessarily because of his tenacity. It might be in spite of it, but he does bless him. Um, he also, however, has a humbling mark, which is a dislocated hip. Now, the best as we can tell, I guess this is kind of true today, but it might be even more important in ancient times, uh, a Jewish man, a Jewish father, prided himself on his dignity, his physical posture, his dignity. Kind of like an old uh, you know, English nobleman might, if you kind of visualize that from an old movie or something. So this is why, even in like the uh, Luke 15 event, where the prodigal son is coming back from years of being an idiot, and the father, who represents God, is portrayed as running across the field, Many commentators will tell you the most shocking thing about all of that is actually how fast he's going. It's not that he's coming toward his son. It's that he's running. Jewish men don't do that. Jewish patriarchs don't run toward you. That's childish. And that's just another example of how posture and poise, nice gait, presenting yourself with dignity is very important. Well, that was taken from Jacob because that limp he would have had from there forward would have robbed him of some cultural sociological dignity that he otherwise wanted. So I don't think you can interpret the hip dislocation as anything other than an act of God humbling him. And it never went away. It was there 24-7. It was a lifelong reminder now of that. And the Jews, out of respect for their forefather Jacob, chose not to even eat a portion of the animal as a way of sort of recognizing the the humility that their forefather received. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's how that is supposed to be taken in the text. Now, um, why does God... Uh, oh, sorry, let me just go back up here. Uh, I want to talk a bit about the figure who's wrestling. I think this is probably the most interesting part of it. So the, um, the, the figure could be some sort of a, a pre-incarnate uh, God. So it could be God in flesh. Um, it could be God taking the form of a man and actually physically wrestling with Jacob. And the proof of that, I guess, is where Jacob says in verse 30, for I have seen God face to face. Well, if I'm looking at you face to face, you know, and I'm saying you're God, well, it kind of makes sense that he would 
we would interpret it as Jacob is actually wrestling with a pre-incarnate, or an, sorry, an incarnate uh, manifestation of God. But I think there's a more likely uh, explanation for this. And I need to take you to two other passages. First, we need to go to Judges 13, and then we're going to go over to Hosea. So Judges 13. <coughs> 21 to 22. The first passage is unrelated to the one we just looked at, but it helps us to understand that when an ancient person saw an angel of God present himself to them, that it was acceptable to view that as, or to say, I have seen God. Even though it wasn't God himself, because God sent a messenger, an angel of God, that that angel is so closely tied to the purposes and plans and sovereignty of God. You could say, I, I, I saw God. So this is just an example of where that actually happens in the Bible, in uh, Judges thirteen twenty one to 22. Verse 21 says, An angel of the Lord, so very clearly an angel of the Lord, appealed, appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. These are like the parents of Samson. And then it says, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So twice, angel appears. Manoah recognizes it's an angel from the Lord. But notice what he says about that. Uh, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. So notice he doesn't say we've seen an angel of God. He says we've seen God. So because of that, it's not... We're not doing any violence to the text or playing around with the text to say that in the Genesis account, it wouldn't be inappropriate if it was an angel of God wrestling with Jacob for Jacob to say, I have seen God face to face and lived. It's, it's not contradictory at all. Now, the greater evidence is in Hosea 12. Because in Hosea, fortunately for us, the, uh, the prophet actually comments specifically on this event, I think. So Hosea 12, 2 to 4. Just into the first part of 4. The Lord has an indictment against Judah. So this is centuries later, um, thinking the 7th century B.C. approximately, where Hosea is prophesying against a now large group of people called the Israelites. They are variously called Ephraim, Judah, Jacob, the Israelites. Hosea's favorite language is Ephraimites because they're like the biggest tribe at the time. So he's just borrowing different synonyms. Don't make... No, don't make too much of the specific words, but Jacob wasn't alive, of course, but he's calling the nation Judah, because that was a dominant tribe. He's calling them Jacob, because Jacob was one of their forefathers. Sometimes he calls them Ephraim in Hosea, because that was a big tribe. So that's, that's the idea here. The Lord has an indictment against Judah, 
and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. So this is referring back to the, the event of uh, Jacob snatching onto Esau's foot. And in his manhood, he strove with God, right? So that must be uh, a reference to the Genesis 32 event because that's where he says, I strove with God. And they, they marked the place, they named the place, they knew the place. And then listen to this next line. He strove with the angel and prevailed. So I, I think it's pretty clear then, I'm going to give it an, an A+, plus, that the angel of the Lord, the God that Jacob was wrestling with, was in fact an angel of the Lord and not God himself in an incarnated state. So why then does Jacob ask his name, uh, or why does God, as in the, the angel, ask Jacob his name if he's all-knowing? Um, well, two things. Maybe the angel didn't know his name, but I think the more likely reason is he wanted him to declare his name. He wanted him to say, oh, I'm the deceiver. I'm the heel grabber. Because in uttering his name, he, Jacob would have known the meaning of his own name. So he's wrestling. The angel's like, what's your name? I'm the heel grabber. And bang, at that moment then, he changes his name to something other. So that makes sense of the naming in the text, the shift of naming in the text. Why does Jacob ask the man his name? Probably because, unlike God, he wasn't fully aware. He wasn't 100% sure who this being was. Why does God not tell him his name? Well, this is a little bit complicated, but uh, God's name is so holy and so distinct that it's, it's, it's uncomfortable for a Jew to even utter it. And when we think of God's name, like when God reveals himself as um, Yahweh, and well, we don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, it's just... Uh, uh, why don't, can someone like throw this in the garbage? <laughs> that rot thing. So this, uh, these four Hebrew consonants, there's no vowels. There's no vowels given. We don't know. Uh, we got to flip them around in English. We just add vowels. Yahweh, Germans. Go like this. So they say Jehovah. It's just the old German way of saying Yahweh. We don't know the exact name of God, but it means something like the ever-living one. And this kind of ties into Jesus' declaration. He's the I am. The I am what? I just am. I'm the ever-living one. So God's name is holy. It's It just is. And... I think what's going on then in the text when Jacob asks, uh, what is your name? Uh, the response is, why do you ask my name? And that's interpreted by Jacob as, oh, this is God. He just is. So it's like, be read between the lines. Jacob seems to have interpreted the angel of God's 
lack of response as a response pointing him to this idea of the fact that he just is like he doesn't have to be named in the way that others are named he just is and the proof of that is having not received the name he jacob comments in the text i've seen god face to face yet my life's been delivered so he recognizes this being to be god and uh therefore i think it's it's pretty clear in the text that the text functions to point to the holiness of God, the distinctiveness of God, and uh, Jacob understands the man's lack of response as an admission of the fact that it was God that he was wrestling with. So, uh, uh, Peniel, or Penuel, is uh, from the Hebrew Panim el Panim. Panim el Panim. And that phrase just means face to face. It's just face to face. Penuel, or a Panim El Panim. So based upon that sound, he names the place Penuel or Penile. I've seen God face to face. And that explains the meaning of the text. This happens a lot in the Old Testament where something happens, they name the event that. They name the place that. Uh, Beth El, house, Beth. Uh, El, God, shortened form of Elohim. Uh, Beth, house, Lachem, bread, house of bread. They, there's some sort of a connection between the name and something that took place there. And Peniel is named because he saw God face to face. So, um, any questions or comments on that before we finish up tonight? Yeah. With your name, obviously, that's your identity. Yeah. Because we, like, no one else has the authority of Jacob. Yeah. But ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So the fact that, like, God shows his authority with your name, like, this is your name. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good insight, just, uh, uh, Jordan. That God. Yeah, I think I think you're you're onto something there. No, Jordan, it could be, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good. Justin Trudeau. I'll give you the last name Trudeau, just randomly. But um, speaking of heel grabbers, but anyway, um, uh, I'm still recording. Sorry, I'm not supposed to make political comments, but. Um, uh, yeah, there, I think you're onto something there. There is authority attached to naming, and uh, certainly in the text, I think that's the case. Same with God, you know, when he, it's not a huge change, but he renames Abraham to Abraham. So, good. Yeah, any other comments or questions? Did you get to uh, Corinthians 11 and not yet? No, just got through two. Okay, okay, great. So we'll see you back here next week. Some of these passages are going to take an hour to work through. Others, 10 minutes. So some nights we're going to cover more than others. And... Uh
that's just the way it is. So see you next week.